Health Matters with Karen Key. Voice disorders fall into three main categories, organic, functional, or a combination of the two. Functional disorders are caused by poor muscle functioning. All functional disorders fall under the category of muscle tension dysphonia. And to tell us more, I'm joined now by Laura Russell. She's a speech-language therapist in private practice in Cape Town, as well as being a clinical educator at the University of Cape Town. Laura, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Thank you for having me. So I've mentioned voice disorders, and there are three categories of them, but maybe you could just explain Mm -hmm. that a little more clearly. Okay, no problem, uh, Karen. So what we're looking at really when, when we look at voice disorders, first is to say why, why do we even um, worry about voice. And really voice is interesting because it's such a reflection of our personality. I mean, if you've ever had a problem with your voice, you'll know what a huge impact it's had, especially if you're someone who, who relies on your voice for a living. But really for all of us, there's very few of us who, who never need to speak. So voice, voice problems um, have a major impact. When we are treating voice disorders or assessing them, we we can put them into different categories, being uh, functional, which is how we use our voices, and then organic, um, which is where there's perhaps something actually growing on the vocal folds. And then we can also look at neurological voice disorders where there's been something like um, nerve damage. And I I think today what we're talking about is the functional ones, which are the ones um, about how we misuse our voice. Now, is this all to do with the poor muscle functioning? You know, the, the functional disorders are interesting in that, in that um, if you had to look at the, the larynx or the vocal folds, you would find that they're completely normal, um, but there's still a voice problem because of the way that we're using them. And often it's about too much tension when we're using our voices. So these are the disorders that are really related um, quite a lot to psychological factors and to stress. Um, which directly affects our voice. If you think about if you've ever been upset or crying, um, how your voice sounds, that's the sort of things we're looking at with the functional disorders. There's really too much tension when you're phonating. So what exactly is muscle tension dysphonia? Okay, muscle tension dysphonia is when you're using too much tension when you're speaking. Usually speaking should be quite uh, effortless. Um, and you shouldn't have to think too much about it. But when you're really tense, all of those muscles around your throat tighten up. You know how if you are stressed, you feel that sort of lump in your throat? Um, If you've been crying, your voice gets a bit wavery, you feel tension in your head and your neck, that's where we tend to carry our tension. And that can directly affect your voice and result in something called muscle tension dysphonia, um, which would be quite a a tense sort of voice quality. And that's purely from, from tension. What can we do about this? Is there anything we can do other than calming ourselves down? <laughs> it's hugely treatable. Look, if it goes too far, um, we, you can actually end up with being completely voiceless. Some people lose their voices completely, and it's just from stress. It's really it's crazy how much stress affects our bodies, but it's really uh, treatable. So what would happen is you would need to go to ear, nose, and throat surgeon to go and be checked out just for them to make sure that there's nothing um, physically wrong and then they would send you on to a speech therapist who would do some voice therapy with you and a lot of it is about learning those patterns of tension identifying them and releasing them and maybe getting a bit of counseling and talking to someone these things are are real the psychological problems that turn into real physical problems and and fairly easily addressed also as we get older as well our voices change quite dramatically yeah, you know, our voices change through, throughout our, our life. They're really dynamic. They're, as I say, they're a reflection of who we are. So from the minute we're born, we're using our, our voices to communicate. And as we get older, our voices, unfortunately, 
can deteriorate along with the rest of us. But um, if you keep yourself fit and healthy, then your voice um, will continue to be fit and healthy. I was going to ask, are there any exercises we possibly should be? We're always hearing about doing physical exercises. But should we be doing those for our voices as well? You know, you need to keep your whole body healthy for a healthy voice. And the best thing, the best advice I could probably give you is to drink more water, keep hydrated, um, because your vocal folds need hydration to vibrate properly. Um, Stay away from too much tea or coffee. Please don't smoke. In terms of exercises, um, you probably need to go and speak to a a speech therapist, but keep yourself healthy and you should um, manage to to hang on to a healthy voice. I'm surprised by the tea and coffee. What, What is that doing to our voices? (laughs) <laughs> tea and coffee's got caffeine in it, and too much caffeine can, can dry you out. Um, you don't need to stop drinking tea or coffee, but don't go overboard with it, and do just make sure that you're drinking plenty of water, especially if you're in like an air-conditioned office or working around a lot of dust or smoke, or if you're talking a lot. Gosh, okay, well, I've learned something now. <laughs> and also things like um, laryngitis. Now, we would lose our voice. A lot of people do when they have laryngitis. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. Why, why do we do that? Laryng- Okay, laryngitis is an inflammation um, of the whole of the larynx. So what happens is your vocal folds, which are tiny little uh, muscles in your throat that vibrate when you speak, they get swollen, so you don't get as good voice as, as you should. And then what happens is instead of resting it, you force and you push through it, and that can, that's where the damage can actually happen. So if you've got laryngitis, best thing you can do is actually just to keep quiet for a bit, if you can. Not always so it's easy. It's very difficult. Mm. And <laughs> one of the other things I was reading, that you can also possibly have a problem, not definitely will, but you could possibly have one, for example, after surgery, and then you're not using mm-hmm. your voice, and then after a, quite a prolonged time, you then need to start talking again. Why would that be so difficult? Remember that the, the vocal folds are muscles, and muscles need exercise. So if you, typically you might see it if you're in an older person who's living alone and never talks, that, that the voice might get a bit weaker because you're not using it. Um, surgery these days, vocal fold surgery, they're very careful not to cause any damage. You do need to go about um, five days to a week of no speaking at all and then gently reintroducing voicing. But that's why it's so important to work um, together with a speech therapist if you're going in for any kind of surgery on your vocal folds. And with this problem, not just after surgery, but in general for people who are having Mm. problems with their voice, what Mm. can you as a speech-language therapist do for us? Okay, well, with first off, it depends what the problem is. Um, It might be... um, as simple as instituting something like what we call a vocal hygiene program, because a lot of voice disorders are actually sort of self-inflicted. So it's the way that you're using your voice, the way that you are, uh, your your lifestyle has contributed to it. One huge contributing factor to voice problems is reflux, heartburn, Um, and that's very manageable, um, both through lifestyle and through medication. So a lot of people don't realize that. So some of it's managing that, managing also the way that you're speaking, maybe training you to use your breath support a little bit better, to speak with less effort, um, to, to focus your voice um, forward a little bit more and off, off from um, the, putting the effort on your larynx. A lot of things that we can help um, train you how to use that, that beautiful instrument of your voice a little bit better. And then just little odds and ends that people have problems with. You know, when you're talking mm. quite a bit, sometimes you have this need, you have this tickle in your throat, or it feels mm. like that all the time, and you feel the need to clear your throat or to cough all mm-hmm. the time. What is that? Could be a few things. Um, reflux again, so heartburn can cause that feeling of needing to cough. 
you need to check if maybe you've got any allergies. Um, post-nasal drip can cause that feeling. could just be dryness. You might need to be um, drinking a little bit more water. But coughing all the time and throat clearing is, is not good for your throat, so I would definitely um, get it checked out by an ENT, an ear, nose and throat surgeon. Because we don't seem to t- worry too much, oh, it's just my voice, or oh, it's just, you know, I'm clearing my throat all the time. We, it's one of those things I think that we push almost to the side. It's not in our minds yeah. it's that important. But just think about yeah. the fact that it could become that important that you can't speak at all at some point. I mean, imagine losing your voice. It would be it would be devastating. And look, things like laryngeal cancer that people always worry about are luckily pretty uncommon. Um, but, you know, you always want to get it checked out. And, and the, the general rule of thumb is that if you've been hoarse for more than three weeks, you should go and get it checked out. Okay, so this isn't something we should be ignoring at all? No, and no, no, not at all. And the, the, the examination isn't isn't awful. You know, they use a little camera, that the, the ENT doctors, and they look in your throat, and it's simple, simple as that. And rather get it checked out and, and be sure. And if people are having um, worries or they're concerned that maybe their voice isn't as it should yeah. be, the Speech mm-hmm. Language Hearing Association, I'm sure, would be able to help. They can just give them a call and they can find a therapist in their area. Yes, absolutely. Your first port of call should always be an ENT because you need to get a diagnosis. They need to actually look at the vocal folds to get a diagnosis. And from there, you're going to work with a speech therapist to help you with whatever the underlying problem is. But certainly, the um, South African Speech Language Hearing Association is a good place um, to find help. So if basically if there isn't anything physically wrong with you, then it would be something that you could assist with? Even if things that are physically wrong are often caused just by the way you're using your voice. But we just want to diagnose this first to make sure we know what we're dealing with um, so that we can tailor our, our treatment to, to exactly what your difficulty is. So first port of call, ENT, get it checked out. And then most of the issues that they find um, can be helped um, by a speech-language therapist, often in conjunction with maybe some reflux medication. Gosh, so it all is not uh, not not dire. It is there's there's help out there. We can do something. Absolutely, absolutely. There's always help. Great. Well, it makes me feel so much better. Seeing as what I do for a living <laughs> is talk all the time, and I <laughs> often wonder if I wake up one morning and it isn't there. I don't know what I do with myself. Exactly, and most of us don't think about that. So look after look after that instrument. It's probably the most precious one you've got. It is for me. That's for definite. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Well, Laura, thank you so much. You you really put my mind at rest. Anyway, so if something does go wrong, I know exactly where to go. Now. But uh, thank you for thank, thank you for, for all those tips. Thank you. It. Thanks, Laura. Good night to you. Good night. Laura Russell is a speech language therapist in private practice in Cape Town, as well as being a clinical educator at the University of Cape Town. For more information, as she said, first of all, you need to go and see an ENT, an ear, nose, and throat specialist, if you're having a problem, and if you need further help after that, please contact the South African Speech Language Hearing Association. You can call them on 086. Triple one three two nine seven, or take a look at the website. It's www.saslha.co.za, and you can have a look on the website because they have lists of therapists in your area, so you'll be able to find one exactly where you live. So it's saslha.co.za. Tune in to SAFM every Wednesday between ten thirty and eleven for the University of the Western Cape's Access to Success Dialogues. We speak to Fred Robertson, Professor Tyrone Pretorius, Minister Ntlantanene and others who share their journey. Through educational opportunities, they have become success stories in their own right. Higher Education Conversations with SAFM in partnership with the University of the Western Cape. Access to success for a greater future. Every Wednesday morning between 10.30 and 11. 
SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Health Matters with Karen Key. Fibroids are non-cancerous tumours that affect between 20 to 40% of women between the ages of 35 and 55. It's most prevalent in the African community, affecting up to 70% of women. It's often symptom-free but can affect a woman who's either pregnant or wants to get pregnant. One of the traditional treatments is a hysterectomy, which would then preclude the woman from having any more children. Uterine fibroid embolization is a minimally invasive, non-surgical treatment of fibroids with a very high success rate, but unfortunately, it's not as well known. So to educate us this evening, I'm joined in studio by Dr. Gary Sudwartz. He's a Cape Town-based consultant radiologist with a special interest in interventional radiology. Dr. Sudwartz, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Hi, Karen. Hi. Well, first of all, can you just what exactly is interventional radiology? So radiology uh, really has three main spheres. The traditional would be looking at x-rays or MRIs or CAT scans and understanding the anatomy and where it's going wrong. Uh, then there's another branch of radiology, which is interventional radiology, whereby we perform procedures through microinvasive means. There would be small little catheters or little nicks in the skin and access for spits in the body. We can access the kidneys or the uh, the lungs. And in this particular case, what we're talking about is access to the uterus uh, via a very small nick in the in the upper thigh, uh, getting into the, the artery to the leg, actually, and direct small catheters and wires, little tubes, into the arteries that supply the uterus. Right. So let's first of all talk about these uterine fibroids. What exactly are they? So they're benign growths. It's normal uterine tissue that's overgrown in a bizarre way. And there are these big lumps or whorls of tissue, uh, which can be from a you know, small half a centimetre in size uh, and well up to you know, 10 centimetres and bigger. And, and the fibroids we can commonly see from, from up in Africa are, are really, really big, going up to the women's liver and so on. So they cause a, a, a lot of... Um, problems they call you mentioned infertility bleeding is a major issue pain they really destroy women's lives in a lot of ways and uh, the traditional uh, methods of treating them have had their own problems so uh, what i'd like to discuss is it's not a new technique it's actually been around for more than 20 years overseas but it's something that we have a special interest in uh, both with the with the Department of Obstetrics and Gynae and Department of Radiology. Um, and, and it's actually available in most major centres in South Africa. I mentioned that it was possibly, in, in a lot of cases, symptom-free, so people were, wouldn't be aware that they had this. They would just be having all these other problems. You know, the traditional route would be a woman goes to the gynecologist for a checkup. She gets an ultrasound. The gynecologist says, look, you've got fibroids. Um, at that stage, she wants to know whether she should do something. And most women, they don't actually need to do anything. They're symptom-free. They don't cause any problems. They don't need to do anything. But in a smallish group of those women, something needs to be done. And the you could go treat the symptoms, which would be painkillers and iron tablets and so on, or the way to surgery, which might be a myomex, which is cutting out the fibroids or a hysterectomy, removing the uterus. Right, and that then, as I said, precludes the woman from ever having children afterwards, which is not the thing for well, a lot of women. Well, that would be one major issue. And then the other would be the psychological impact of mm. actually losing your uterus, uh, which is underestimated and is a major issue for a lot of women. So what exactly is this embolization that you're doing now? So what we do is we inject tiny little particles that are the size of the small little arterioles inside the fibroids and those particles block the nutrient supply to the fibroids. So effectively we're blocking the nutrients getting to the fibroids. The fibroids will then die and shrink in that in that process. That's it. 
It's really as simple as that. <laughs> oh, it, I'm waiting for this long catch, no, technical no, it, explanation. It, it, they yeah. just shrink and die. They shrink and die. Exactly. <laughs> as simple as that. So, so it takes a little bit of time, uh, you know, six months to two years of shrinkage. And so not all women are amenable and, 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 and there is a process you need to go through. But it's effectively a very effective treatment. So that, you know, one or two nights in hospital, 10-day recovery, as compared to, to my mectomy history to me, which might be, you know, five days in hospital and a three-week, uh, sorry, six-week recovery. So it, it has a significant uh, difference in, in, in recovery time and, um, and satisfaction is very, very high. It's a minimally invasive procedure as well, as you said. Yeah, it's it's minimally invasive. So what it is is a very small hole, uh, doesn't need a stitch. Uh, it's sim- you simply push it down on the artery and it stops bleeding. Um, the you know it, it is highly technical and and you need a lot of skills uh, in a specialized environment. But the procedure takes about an hour um, and uh, done under sedation instead of a general anesthetic. So it has a lot of pluses. So why is this not that well known? If it's so much, in my view, but just listening to what you're telling me, so much better. Well, it depends on on the situation. So, in as I say, the fibroids shrink; they don't disappear. Okay. Uh, so, if the aim is if bulk is the major issue, then you might uh, re- prefer to go for a surgical option where you actually remove the the fibroid. In a small poten- uh, percentage of cases, there uh, is cancer and not a benign tumor that's growing. In that uh, case, you wouldn't want to embolize; uh, you'd want to remove it. And so one of the downsides of this procedure, you're not actually removing any tissue. So in some women, they really want to know what's, what's going on there. And um, those, the only way to do that is actually to remove the fibroid or the tumor and send it off for so analysis. you would just, wouldn't just do a biopsy in, in the general course of doing the embolization? No, no. It, okay. we, in, a, in a small group of women, possibly one in a thousand, one in two thousand, uh, there will be a cancer there. But it's, it is very, very small. Uh, risk. Is this something you'd have to repeat at a later date? Do these things regrow or would more possibly grow? It's a, this is a very good question. So the answer, the short answer is yes. Um, there is a risk of regrowth. The tumors are hormone responsive. So the younger the woman, uh, the earlier she needs to have this procedure done, the higher the risk that she would land up with another procedure. Doing another embolization is not a problem. Doing a repeat myomectomy is a big issue because it's a complicated procedure. So uh, we counsel patients that this is an, a chronic condition, uh, that if they're young and they're coming in for the first time with these big fibroids, there's a good chance they're going to come back to us at a later stage. If they're older, it might be the only procedure. Okay, so what are the what are the cons? What what is against this? Why why should some people think twice? Well, the the first is availability and accessibility. So it's really in the tertiary level institutions, the teaching hospitals, where we're available to most uh, women who are not on medical aid. The medical aids have just recently come on board. I'm saying in the last you know four or five years, the big medical aids have decided that they're happy to pay for this procedure. Um, they've seen the evidence on in overseas journals, and, and it's very difficult to to deny that vast bulk of knowledge. But cost-wise as well, it must be you know good for them because it's less time in hospital. It's all that sort of thing. It, less it, theatre time, I would imagine as well. And it it is unfortunately the consumables are very expensive. The consumables, okay. So so it is a little bit more expensive than a myomectomy. Okay, so. So you said they're available in tertiary institution hospitals mostly. Yeah, so the skills are required to perform the immunization is restricted to interventional radiologists, uh, of which there aren't very many in the country. We're training them in the in the academic institutions. I'm based at Kruderski Hospital. I have many registrars uh, that are training under me. When I was at Baraguanath, it was a similar 
situation. So radiologists are coming out with skills. It is something that have to take up as a, a specialized interest. But as demand grows, people gain the skills and will be performing more of them in the future. Are there any disadvantages after the procedure? Will the patient feel ill? Will there be bleeding after that? What Are there any disadvantages that they should know about before they start? Sure. So the, the commonest complaints after would be pain. Um, it is a painful procedure, and for that reason, we actually give very, very potent um, painkillers, pethidine, opiates, um, and morphine, so, so that and the patient actually needs to stay in hospital for at least one, possibly two nights to get on top of that pain. Uh, once the first sort of 24 hours over, the, the pain is usually well under control with simple uh, oral medication. Um, Thereafter, they go home, they look after, they're able to look after themselves. I'd say within 10 days, they're feeling at 90, 95% capacity. And then the recovery uh, takes time. Now, bleeding stops immediately. If you can imagine, the the fibroids have no blood supply. So therefore, if if that was the patient's major complaint, um, you've got to understand the women that are coming in, they they may be bleeding for for a week or, or two weeks a month. They can't take in enough iron to maintain their stores. So they come in very, very anemic. Uh, sometimes even having had previous transfusions. So that's a major benefit, and that's immediate. The shrinkage, as I say, does take time. So if it's a bulk-related problem, for instance, uh, causing constipation or bladder issues or pain, then uh, the the benefit may take some more time. And the reason why people aren't being told about this, why? I think it's to do with awareness. I think a lot of it's to do with awareness that the uh, it, it's a it seems to be more in the radiological sphere that it's offered rather than a gynecological sphere. So patients come through their gynecologists who may not have experienced it as registrars in their training, and those gynecologists are, are aware that these patients they, they're not particularly comfortable with something they don't know that much okay. about. Uh, as they're coming through, and as I say, I've got a very close relationship with the Department of Obstetrics and Gynae, those registrars that are coming through as new gynecologists have experienced the procedure, have had patients that have had it, and I think that they in the future will be very happy to refer those patients in the future. So what do we do with the existing gynecologists? <laughs> I, think, I think it's about women asking. I think it's well, it's for them knowing to ask. That's exactly. the point. And that's why I thank you for this opportunity. So just to know to ask. And, and what I do is a lot of women approach me uh, directly as a radiologist, and all of those women will go to a gynecologist first. Uh, They'll get assessed. We'll make sure that they don't have cancer, that the fibroids are amenable, that their expectations are correct in what they will receive out of the the treatment. And many might have some reservation, and then they won't go on to have the procedure. But we work hand in hand uh, with the gynecologist. Because as we said right at the start, this isn't for everybody. Yeah. So so there has been... uh, so one of the uh, groups of women that that you might think twice about is women who uh, would want to fall pregnant. Now, this is a complicated question because the you know, traditionally in medicine we say we haven't got any evidence for it. So we try to exclude uh, patients that we don't know what the outcome is going to be, which is the safest approach. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad idea. It just means we don't know what is going to happen. So we have traditionally excluded women who want to fall pregnant, but unfortunately a lot of the patients that I see can't have a myomectomy. There are too many fibroids, they're too large, and their positions are unfavorable. Well, the myomectomy, just to, re- to, to remove that, that those... is the embolization, that is the... No, no, that's oh. actually removal of the fibroids, oh, but retaining removal. the uterus. Oh, okay, yes. But okay. it's deemed that they would be high risk for either hysterectomy, because those, if you can imagine there's so many fibroids, for once a better example, a, a, a Christmas cake, uh, removing the raisins. 
you wouldn't have you'd much of a cavity. Dead. No, you'd have nothing. No. <laughs> so, so you really wouldn't have a viable uterus. So, uh, this is, and, and you mentioned before, in Black African women, particularly in, in West African uh, background, we there's definitely a genetic component. They're very aggressive fibroids. They grow back very, very quickly after after previous myomectomy. And those women need another chance. So, so this is where embolization is 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 becoming a very attractive option. Um, and we've seen in large series of women that were told not to have a embolization if they wish to become pregnant, because that was really the the evidence that we had that they'd have become pregnant in the future. So we know that there's a benefit. We're not quite sure which group to pick. So we offer both. Depending on the skills of the surgeon, what's likely to be the outcome, will we have a viable uterus at the end of the surgery? And would embolization work in that case? Often we actually do both. Because we can do an embolization, which will reduce blood flow to the fibroids and the uterus, and then remove the fibroids, which makes the surgery much easier and provides a better result too. So there's a, it's really a, a case-by-case approach, and we work in a team to, to discuss these, these patients individually. The option, though, once you've done the embolization, there is still the option or the possibility of a pregnancy. Absolutely. Okay, so that would be a far better outcome than if you had the whole hysterectomy. If, if it's pregnancy, that's, so, so the, the first group of women we've looked at, it, obviously, in, in many, many thousands, these are women that were offered a hysterectomy. So the, if you compare hysterectomy versus embolization, the outcomes of both are very, very good in terms of pain, bleeding, those symptoms. Uh, and, and, and that's what, as the group has grown, we've looked at other groups of women uh, that would have other problems. And, it's, and in fact, the indications are growing into various other gynecological conditions where embolization has benefit, but it's discussion for another day. Yeah. But I, I'm just very, I just want women out there to know that if this is the situation they find themselves in, yeah. as we said, this is not for everybody, but yeah. th- th- this is another option perhaps for you. Absolutely. So, so this is, I, I would urge them simply to ask. Ask the gynecologist, get online, learn about it. Um, a, I'm actively going out to allow women to, to ask the question, is this an option? Um, and, and, and in some cases it isn't. But it's, it's simply being aware of an, of an opportunity that may benefit them. Um, if I can mention my website, uh, it's www.fibroids.co.za. It's got a lot of information on it. And as I say, we work together with with gynecologists, so uh, and those gynecologists are, are um, independent professionals, and they will give the, the full uh, gamut of treatments. And I've been on your website, and I've, as you can see, I've printed it all out. <laughs> Everything you want to know is on there. I appreciate that. Thank Everything you. you need to know: the pros and the cons, the advantages, the disadvantages. Yeah. You haven't shied away from anything, so no, you no, can read it all. Absolutely, and I want women to know as much as because th- they can make the, the choice for themselves. Look, uh, the other the other thing is to make it available to women. So we can, if we can make it available in more hospitals, because medical aids have various uh, conditions, they can only be treated at one hospital, or another one hospital group, and another. So I've actually opened up two further practices uh, in Johannesburg. Simply. Uh, in different parts of Johannesburg that make it more accessible uh, to women across the country. So where are you at the moment, Johannesburg and Cape Town? Johannesburg in four ways, in a uh, Park Lane Hospital and in Cape Town at UCT Private Hospital. Okay, so you are moving around the country. So if people from around. other parts of the country, they'll Absolutely. have to come in to Joburg or Cape Town? They would have to come to Cape Town or Johannesburg. If they contact me, I'd be able to refer them on to pay, uh, people in Bloemfontein. Or, oh, so there or, are other doctors yeah, doing this around absolutely. the country? So, so there's a network of radiologists, uh, both in Bloom and, and in Durban, uh, that are highly skilled and performing the procedure regularly. Well, that's actually very promising then. 
Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, as I've often mentioned on the show, unfortunately, I mean, you think, well, I think back to my grandmother's day when you didn't ask the doctor anything. Yeah. You just sat there, the doctor spoke at you, yeah. and you didn't ask because the doctor was the doctor, and you, you knew nothing, so you didn't ask or say anything. Yeah. Things have changed now. Well, there's you need a new, to there's, ask. Well, there's a new doctor on board, and, and it's Dr. Google. Well, oh, I, me and <laughs> so Dr. Google are big friends, unfortunately. So that's, that's, Dr. Google, yeah. uh, you know, is <laughs> kind of scary. So, so women come in really with often mm. as much or more knowledge than I have about their problem. <laughs> They've been looking online and, and driving themselves absolutely crazy with all the pros and the cons and the benefits. And it's quite scary because the, the, the context they, they don't have. And that'd be part of, of the counseling process is to just set them, yeah, set them on because track. Because you can actually have every disease under the sun. Absolutely. You, because you'll have all those, those, you'll have those all symptoms. You'll have all the Everything. I mean, I've got. I cannot tell you what I'm dying of every week when I, I read that. No, no, no. Me and Doctor Google are big friends. But the point is here. Please do ask your doctor. Yeah. Just say, is this an option? Is it an option? And what if Give the doctor says, "Look, I'm not really sure what this is." Well, what do you do then? So what we do is the first the first step would be to get a good idea of what's actually inside, and that would be imaging. Uh, so an ultrasound is the traditional uh, first method of choice. MRI is now taking over really as the primary uh, imaging modality. Unfortunately, it's expensive, uh, but it yeah, it is. It's very expensive, but it, uh, but it really provides the best data that you can compare uh, with. And so uh, once we, we have a diagnosis that these are fibroids, then the decision would be, you know, which which uh, of the range of treatments. And it might simply be inserting a Mirena device, uh, you know, into your trine. Oh, uh, really? Would that also which would reduce bleeding, and that may be all the patient needs. Yeah. Exactly. And she wouldn't have to go through a, a, an expensive or, or, or complicated surgery. And so each woman is treated individually, and assessed properly, um, and and it's really nice that the big medical guys, you know, talking med scheme or discovery, they're really getting on board. Uh, and we're talking millions of South African women are now covered uh, for for this new procedure. That's great because a lot, it takes sometimes a long time for them to realise that this is something they need to come on board with. And the pressure comes from the patients themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. So we do have some power. Yes, yeah, we do absolutely. Have some power every now and again, but it's great. And as we said, the whole the point of this interview really was to find out what this was all about and yeah. also to get the word out there. So that women know that they have got this choice. Yeah, absolutely. And the big gynecological hospitals. So, so working at Parkland Hospital, there are over 60 gynecologists in the one hospital. Um, they're seeing a wide range of treatments. They're doing myomectomies and hysterectomies every day. And now they're very excited to get on board. Netcare's come on board uh, and provided a very high-end machine for me to perform the, the procedure within their uh, women and child hospital. So, so I think it is growing. It's very exciting. Um, and and as I say, teaching uh, new radiologists and gynecologists about the procedure is very rewarding. Well, I'm glad you're out there doing that for thank all you. those women who need the procedure. Thank you it's very much. It's great to know there's someone looking out for us out there. So yeah. thank you very much indeed for that. And thank you very much for joining us in studio this evening. I appreciate that. And uh, please, if anyone wants any more information, they can contact me either through the website or... or I do have a phone number here, which is your your help. It's a phone number of your... Call the call center number. Yes. Which a contact center, I'll give out that number as well. People can call that if With they pleasure. have any more questions. Absolutely. But thank you for your time and thanks for coming in. Thank you, Karen. Dr. Gary Sudwatts is a Cape Town-based consultant radiologist with a special interest in interventional radiology. Now, for more information, if you want to find out more about fibroids and what you can do, and if you're having a problem and you just want to speak to someone to find out what the next step is, you can take a look, first of all, at the website. It's fibroids.co.za, or you can call their contact center number. It's 21 
433-1192. And as Dr. Sudwart said, doesn't matter where you are in the country, there are hospitals that are doing this in Johannesburg. He has offices in Johannesburg and Cape Town, but he could refer you to somebody anywhere else in the country. So don't worry if you're sitting in Bloemfontein or wherever it is you're sitting. If you need to speak to someone or find out more, please don't hesitate because this can only be good for you. So the website again, fibroids.co.za or you can call 021-433-1192. Or if you've missed any of that information, you know that you can always email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za, and I'll pass those contact details on to you. Every weekend, SAFM brings you the people at the center of the stories. We give you a clear perspective on national and international events. Find out how on Weekend AM Live from 6 every Saturday and Sunday morning. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Join me, Sikim Kabat Daily Weekdays on Market Update with MoneyWeb, where we discuss how the economy and business affect you and your wallet. That's Market Update with MoneyWeb weekdays at 6 p.m. on SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, vitamin B12 deficiency, which contributes to fatigue, anemia, lethargy and depression, is believed to affect about 40% of the population and may cause nerve damage if not treated in time. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined now by nutritional consultant Vanessa Asensio. Vanessa, good evening. Welcome back to the show. It's nice to have you back. Hi, Karen. Thank you. Yes, good evening. Thank you for having me. So vitamin B12, gosh, it's always something. We always never know quite what we're doing. And I didn't realize that B12 was that particular vitamin B that caused all those things. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in today's time, um, with so many people, for example, going vegan, uh, vegetarian, you know, reducing the amount of animal protein, a lot of people uh, who take uh, medication, even just antacids, for example, they're all so severely deficient. People with Crohn's disease, anyone who's had any kind of, um, you know, uh, poor gut health, gastrointestinal surgery, it's just across the board, and the deficiency is very, very high. And I think because in today's time we're so stressed, uh, stress definitely depletes B12 out of the body as well. So there's a host of factors that contribute to the deficiency. I, I believe in South Africa it was estimated around 40 to 50 percent are deficient in B12. Um, so that's quite a high figure. I believe it, it's probably a little bit higher simply because of our nutritional intake. But yeah, it's, it's a very interesting. Um, vitamin in the way it works, um, the absorption of it, and just how important it is to make sure that you have got enough B12. Now, what if you take like one of those multi-B vitamins? Is that enough or do you have to take it separately as a separate thing? So uh, whenever I look at it, it's, it's very individual. Um, I, I, the, the actual supplements, those B12 supplements, the tablets that you take, the absorption is so low. Um, so I, I often don't even that people take the B12 tablets. The best thing is the actual the, the B12 injection. That's why people go for it because it's so much more efficient, except it's quite invasive. And my big interest is actually in the sublingual oral spray. Yes. It's 227% higher absorption. It's non-invasive. Out of a hostile environment, it's the best way to actually take in your vitamins. So you just spray it inside your, um, inside your mouth. Um, and it absorbs straight into the bloodstream. So it bypasses the gut completely. And many of us today, 
despite taking a lot of nutritional supplements and eating a certain way, we often start to realize, you know, how much am I actually absorbing because your gut is so compromised. So sublingual is definitely the way to go outside of a hospital environment or injection. Um, and there's been so many interesting, um, quite groundbreaking studies and research done uh, just to show the effectiveness of the sublingual. So I, I prefer it if I myself am, um, I don't have any red meat. I haven't for years. And I take uh, B12. I've always taken B12. So I find that it's something um, the, the sublingual is definitely better absorbed uh, out of everything I've personally tried. I actually spoke to the man who was out here from the UK who actually founded his, I think the company was called Better You. And he oh, was yes. talking they about the, one, yeah. yeah, they were talking about the sublingual under the tongue sp- vitamin sprays. I, I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. Oh, uh, very interesting. interesting. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Now, now this vitamin B12. Now I, I'm having a because um, I take the the multi B, the maxi B, whatever it's called. But it's all the yes. vitamin. Am I am I okay here, Vanessa? I'm just trying to check. So, do you have fish, meat, eggs, dairy, etc.? Yes. Do you yes, eat I all do. Those foods? Unfortunately, okay. I eat way too much stuff. No, yes. no, don't say unfortunately. <laughs> it's, it's totally okay. I believe that you know people ask me, Vanessa, what do you think of of people being vegan? And I think, well. We literally die without B12, so should we really be, you know, going that route? Um, and it's, you know, it affects us so severely when we're so deficient. So it often, you know, our our body's so intelligent in so many ways. Do we really, you know, should we be eating meat? Shouldn't we? But obviously, everything always comes always comes down to the quality of the, of the produce that you eat. So if you're getting good quality meat and eggs without the hormones and everything, absolutely, I think it's a great uh, way to eat. And very important because in today's time, we definitely need extra nutrients. So I'm a big believer in making sure that we don't go, you know, completely plant-based and not get nutrients we need. No, so I mean- you, you will be covered if you are supplementing with a B-complex yes, and I you am. are eating yeah. B12, so it's, uh, you know, through your, your, your food intake. But stress levels, depending on the individual, depending how stressed you are, um, also affects you know, the way B12 functions in the body. So if people are uh, very, very stressed, they tend to have a higher B12 deficiency. Now, is this something we should be taking in the morning or at night? Is there a time of day we should be taking it? Is it something we should be taking on its own? Or can we, you know, we sort of shovel all those things down our throats in the morning when we get up, all the the vitamin things and everything else? Is this something we should be taking on its own? When, how should we be doing this to get the full maximum benefit? So I would recommend that because it's, it's an energy vitamin uh, to take it uh, mid-morning or in the morning. If you're taking B-complex tablets, never take it on the empty stomach. Oh. So the B12, uh, actual, the, the sublingual spray, B12 doesn't cause as much nausea, but if you take B-complex, a host of vitamins in a tablet form, it can make you feel very, very nauseous. Um, I generally, with most supplements, I say to people always, unless specified, have it after breakfast because especially a good breakfast or if you don't have a big breakfast, have it after lunch. Just simply because the absorption would be better with certain, you know, if, if certain vitamins are fat, uh, soluble, etc. But just some of them are very potent and the very potent ones like these vitamins can make you feel so nauseous. So I would I'd recommend you take it after breakfast or after lunch. Don't take it in the afternoon or in the evening um, because it's going to, you know, for some people with sensitive uh, central nervous systems, it's going to keep them up. So I personally take it at lunch because then I feel like I don't have a 3 o'clock dip, um, but that's just what I like to do. So, And I have the, the B12 spray in my handbag, 
And if I'm, you know, mid-morning having, you know, so much on my plate, then I do take it then as well. Now, I was looking through some information and I was quite horrified to notice the things that low levels of vitamin B12 can do to you. I mean, yes. it, it's it just tell us some of those things because I, I literally was, I was astounded. Yeah, you know, the big one is obviously um, your, anything related to your central nervous system. So fatigue is a big one. People who feel fatigue, even though they sleep enough, uh, that's a sign of B12 deficiency. Uh, poor memory, the brain fog kind of feeling. Um, a lot of people experience pins and needles or brittle nails and hair. That's also a sign of uh, B12 deficiency. If you have any kind of neurological problems, you should get checked as well. Um, things like, you know, even decreased appetite. Um, so there's so many different things. In, if, you, if you don't address the deficiency, you get severe nerve damage, and that's where the big problem comes in. So obviously none of us want to feel fatigued and have brain fog and et cetera, but severe nerve da- damage over prolonged deficiencies can cause things like dementia, Alzheimer's, um, you know, that kind of thing. So it's really important that it does get addressed. And it's easy to test for. You, know, you can just test your B12 levels. Um, I, I Generally, blood tests, I'd always recommend that people test their iron levels, their B12 and their vitamin D3. Uh, I'm a big believer in really checking those out. Um, and definitely, you know, with, with constant fatigue, a lot of my clients who feel, you know, Vanessa, I've slept so much and I just don't feel like I wake up. I just feel... This constant fatigue is often related to a B12 deficiency, but of course it can be many other things as well. We never ever knew about this before. I mean, the, the vitamin D is another thing that I've spoken about quite often on the show where all of a sudden every second person you speak to has got low vitamin D levels, which is, if you think about it logically, rather bizarre in a country like South Africa where we have so much sunlight. But a large number of the population is is vitamin D deficient. Now a lot of us are vitamin B12 deficient. And what, what are we doing wrong here? Are we not eating the right things? Are we not eating them properly? What are we doing? I think we're doing a lot of unnatural things. So we're very sedentary, first of all. Despite being in a very sunny country, we wear sunblock. We're in offices most of the day. We cover ourselves in clothes. We're not completely naked in the sun 20 minutes every day. Um, we're also having very processed food. So it's not so much about adding in supplements. It's more about what is it that's depleting nutrients that I'm supposed to have naturally. So things like stress, medication, high sugar diet, high processed foods, not enough sleep, all compromises uh, the uptake of, of nutrients in the body. We on so many antibiotics and medications that we not even, our gut health, where 75% of our immune system sits, our gut health is so compromised. So we're not even absorbing half of what we should. Then our soil is just overused so much that, you know, the mineral content that it used to have no longer exists. So this is where the problems come in. It's got to do with lifestyle. It's got to do with our food sources, our stress levels, and, of course, our gut health. Our gut health, I always say to people, really need to sort out your gut. It's, it's, I think it's going to be possibly the most important part of medicine in, in the 21st century is uh, going to be gut health. So simply because we just, uh, you know, we have such poor gut health. So that's just, my, yeah, my my personal belief. Is there ever any chance of us overdosing on vitamin B12? I mean, if we're eating all the correct things and we're relatively yes. healthy to start with, and now we're eating the fish and the meat and the dairy and the eggs and all those things, and then we're still taking a vitamin B12 supplement on top of that, can we overdose on this stuff? 
No, I wouldn't say you could overdose, you know, depending obviously on the type of B12 that you are uh, taking in. So some of them could have um, other things in it, for example. Um, so, no, you, you, you wouldn't overdose. A lot of people who do eat, say, you know, your, your uh, very rich sources of B12, they possibly won't need to supplement with a B12 specifically, but they would need to take a B-complex. Um, especially people who, for example, are very stressed, who are highly strung, who who have, say, anxiety, um, you know, those kind of people would need to supplement with a B-complex. Uh, but you generally, I find those people aren't eating properly anyway. So in general, I would recommend, you know, it's always good to have, I don't believe in cookie cutter anything that one size fits all. Um, I always believe in just making people aware of possible deficiencies they may have related to conditions that they feel or how they feel, because we are really meant to feel great. I think we have no idea how good our bodies are really meant to feel and function, how we meant to feel. So I always, you know, I'm a big believer in just educating people on, on certain things. But to just have a personalized consultation with a, a practitioner, a nutritionist, a functional medicine a practitioner, whatever it is, so that you actually get specifically related to what you need, a personalized outline and plan and guidance. Um, you know, and a lot of people obviously don't do go that route or they can't afford to or it's, a, you know, too much of a mission. Um, those people I would recommend, you know, if you are feeling anything, perhaps get a blood test and get it checked out and then research. You know, we have so much access to information these days, perhaps not to our advantage all of the time, but there is resources that you can contact and use, um, you know, that are credible and are worth looking at if you do want to really improve how you feel, especially if you're feeling tired, overwhelmed and stressed. And one of the concerns I would imagine is the elderly, though. Yes, the elderly, absolutely. You know, that's one, it's such a big um, area because, uh, you know, older adults don't have enough hydrochloric acid in their stomach, so they don't really absorb a lot of things um, that are naturally present in food. So they really need to supplement a little bit more, but they also really need to get checked for deficiencies because a lot of them will have fortified foods, which I'm not a fan of. I don't believe in, you know, cereals that are fortified and things like that. That's just me personally. But uh, I really believe that because of their hydrochloric acid plus perhaps poor gut health, that they are very deficient in certain nutrients that definitely affects their their well-being and their quality of life. And so this should be something that possibly in retirement homes and in frail care, this should be something that should be of concern to the dietitian who's putting together the meals there. Absolutely. And they, I've, I've personally lectured at uh, quite a few old-age homes and there's some very progressive ones out there that are really doing such an incredible job that really, you know, they've got just, a great team and there's others that you know there's people that can't get out of their bed and they're tired and they've got restless leg and they've got so many things and no one ever tests them for any uh, deficiencies in terms of vitamins and minerals that you know a lot of people don't believe in any of this stuff to start off with but the minute you address it simple things like just iron vitamin d you know improves their mood straight away gives them more energy and I think the big thing is really focusing on, on quality of life, not just waking up, taking tablets and thinking this is it. You know, it's really just being able to have energy, to have, you know, feel good, wake up and really have uh, zest for life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, it sounds quite simple when you think, oh, it's a B12 deficiency. But sometimes in many cases, it is literally a vitamin and, it's, you know, you're eating the wrong foods.
I've seen the most miraculous changes of people, even little kids. The minute they change their diet, adding specific nutrients, they're a brand new person. I was about to ask you about children because I don't think we should be shoveling too many vitamin supplements down their throats too early. I think we should be giving them correct food to eat if possible. I know in certain cases it isn't possible because some of the things that they should be eating, is they're quite expensive. But what should we be doing with our children? So, you know, with children, I, I'm a, as I said, I'm a big believer in gut health. So if your child's been on a lot of antibiotics, the first thing you do is give them probiotics. And there's really good children's probiotics. If a child, it's like investing in your child's health. If your child has got good gut health, it absorbs food better. Um, get clued up on nutrition for your child. You, we know that children don't. You know, sometimes I look at, at little children's uh, baby formulas and per 100 grams, it's got 30 grams of sugar, and they're so tiny. Whereas if we, I mean, we can't even, we shouldn't even be ingesting that much sugar. So look at your labels. Look at the processed foods that you're giving your child. There are fussy eaters uh, and kids that refuse to eat certain things. They're obviously going to need to supplement with minerals. Um, but you don't have to take, you know, vitamins that, you know, are loaded with sugar because a lot of these chewy things out there, they just got a whole host of sugar. So your nutrition is your first and most fundamental aspect when feeding your child. And you can do things and you can find uh, recipes that, you know, have, you know, that are for fussy eaters specifically. There's a lot of resource out there. If your child just refuses and is actually eating but malnourished, there's uh, things like spirulina that are very good for kids because they can take it, um, pregnant mothers can take it. Um, there's certain supplements, uh, you know, combination mineral and vitamin supplements that are good for kids that haven't got sugar or syrups or things like that. So it's just important to make sure, right, I want, I wanna, I wanna sort out my child's gut health if that's the issue. I also want to make sure that my child is absorbing its food properly and eating the correct foods. That's where it starts. And anything beyond that, you know, for problem children or children that have, um, you know, learning issues, then you need to take, say, Amigas and extra things. So it's very personalized. Um, I always think that often if I look at a child's diet, I can see where the deficiencies are and where things can change. If a child's got too much sugar happening, you can immediately tell as well. So it's quite, you're right, child needs to eat properly, and that needs to be the first and foremost uh, you know, aspect. And if a child's been on a lot of antibiotics to make sure that they have got you know are taking probiotics for a period of two years at least wow well vanessa i think you've explained that all we all know now that what we should and should not be doing and thank you very much once again it's always so interesting to talk to you i love chatting with you on the show so thank you so much for your time this evening thanks it's such a pleasure it's wonderful chatting to you thank you so much thanks vanessa good night to you you, good night. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Vanessa Asensio is a nutritional consultant. And for more information, we were talking there about sublingual vitamin sprays. That means under your tongue. If you want to find out more about those, you can have a look. There's a website. It's betteryou.com. And we were hoping to have Neil Nair from Some Were Made talking about prescribed minimum benefits, but we've been having a problem trying to reach him. So unfortunately, we'll hopefully get that interview up in one of the shows in the future. But to see us out tonight, let's just take a little bit of Mango Groove.
And that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with time to travel. So join me then. Don't forget there's a list of available documents for Health Matters. If you'd like any of them, they're on Facebook, Health Matters on SAFM, or you can email me healthmatters at safm.co.za. And if you've missed any of the contact details or websites or phone numbers tonight, just drop me a mail, healthmatters at safm.co.za. Time now for some nighttime music with Stephen Kirker. Hello, Stephen.